الحمد لله وكفى وسلاما على عباده الذين استفى أما بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قد أفلح من زكاها وقد خاب من دساها سبحان ربك رب العزة أما يصفون وسلاما على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صلي على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم One of the topics Hazrat Sahib had asked us to discuss with all of you was the concept of something in Arabic known as bid'at or bid'at and particularly how that pertains to tasawwuf so that we can recognize and the brothers from Africa can recognize what constitutes a bid'ah and where is it that some people in the name of Sufism or some people in the name of tasawwuf have gone astray and which practices are acceptable and are not bid'ah even if there might be some people who don't understand the reason why those practices have been adopted So the first thing to understand is that the word bid'ah means, simply in the Arabic language, the word bid'ah itself is not good or bad. It doesn't carry any positive or negative connotation. Bid'ah simply means a matter newly begun, something that is new. It has nothing to do about whether it's bad or good. Just the word itself in the Arabic language means a matter newly begun, something that is new. And actually, the fuqaha, the jurists of Islam, divided bid'at into five categories. Five categories of bid'at in the deen. In other words, that if you do something new in the deen, what is going to be the value of that new action according to the sharia? What we call, what will be the hukmi shari of that new action? So the fuqaha said there are five categories of such new actions. One will be called wajib, obligatory. Second will be called mustahab, preferred. Third will be called mubah, which means permissible. In this sense, it means neutral. Neutral means that it neither carries any reward nor does it incur any sin. That is really what mubah means in Arabic. To mean permissible in the, in the terminology of the Jewish means it's morally neutral. You will neither be rewarded for that action nor will you be punished for that action. Fourth is makruh or disliked or offensive. And the fifth is haram or prohibited unlawful. The first category such as wajib, example given of this is such as when we take the mushaf, our copies of the Qur'an al-Kareem. The Qur'an al-Kareem that we and you read today and all over the world the different copies, 99.99% of the different copies that are read in the world have new things in them. Now before we continue we have to understand what does it mean new? New in terms of the deen means anything that did not exist at the time of the Prophet in the zaman of Rasulullah and be called new. Okay? So in other words, if you look at the Qur'an and the parchments and the way the Sahaba possessed the Qur'an at the time of the Prophet and the way me and you possess the written Qur'an today, it's totally... It's, it, there, but no, no, I shouldn't say that. There's some new things. There's some new things. For example, number one is the vowels. What they call the diacritical mark, the harakat. So you would see, for example, when you read Bismillah, underneath the ba, there's a little line. 
which is called Kasra in Arabic, that teaches you when you say the pronounce the consonant ba, you're supposed to say bi, add a little e on it. That was not there in the Musafir's money. Alhamdulillah, just on this recent trip on Umrah, I was able to see a copy of the Musafir Usmani in Makkah Mukarramah. And Allah Akbar, I would have a difficulty reading it <laughs> because <laughs> there were no marks on it. Things like that. So that was considered wajib. In other words, when the non-Arabs started accepting Islam and they weren't that proficient, they wouldn't be able to read. Just like, you know, when you re- learn English, the person who knows English, they can see the letter A and they know how it's pronounced. For example, in car, we say the word A is A. In cat, we say the word A is A. There's no sign there. Now imagine if somebody decided that, okay, what I'll do is there's so many new people who are learning English, and they have no idea when they see car to say pronounce their letter A as A, and they see cat to pronounce it as A. So I'll make some system of signs for them. Right? So that is what happened. That they added these signs, these what we call marks on the Quran al-Karim. This was something new. In the sense that this was not the way this, at the time of the Prophet the Sahaba read the Qur'an. However, this is wajib mandatory. Why? Because it saves people from making mistakes in the Qur'an al-Karim. The second example, is, the second category of bidah is called mustahab. <coughs> which means it's recommended. Now the way to understand that is really, almost many of the things that we have been talking about are mustahab. There's something that's new, but it's strongly recommended. For example, when we learn how to read the Qur'an, so an instructor will teach us to pronounce, to practice the different pronunciation of related letters. For example, to say, Of, Gaf, Of, Gaf, Of, Gaf. Now the Sahaba did not sit in Masjid Nabi and do this. And the Prophet did not teach the Sahaba to do this exercise. So this exercise is something new. And it's for the deen. So it concerns us that what is its value according to the sharia. This is recommended. Now why is it recommended? It's recommended because anything, and this is really the most of the discussion will come on this and I'll come back to it, but anything that brings you to a goal that is outlined in the Quran and the sunnah is recommended. I'll come back to the second category we'll discuss more in detail. Very quickly, let's finish the other three. The third category was mubah or permissible. The famous example they give of this is to design your house in an architectural style different from the houses of the Sahaba at the time of the Prophet in Medina Manawra. Because technically the way your house is designed in Katsina Abdul Qadir is a bidah because the Sahaba did not have a house like yours in Medina Manawra at the time of the Prophet It's something new. But this permissible. My glasses, that could even come in. So these, these are things that are permissible. Alright? Now, to give you a more pertinent example pertaining to the deen is to design a masjid. To have an architectural design of a masjid that's pertaining to the deen. And it's an architectural design that is something new, is different from Masjid Nabawi, for example. Right? So that is permissible to design the masjid in a different architectural style. Fourth category was disliked innovation. I'll use the same example of a masjid. It is disliked, just as an example, let's say there's an Arab prince who spends $20 million on a masjid, right? Now, depending on the context, this might be considered disliked. This is something new 
In the time of the Sahaba, their masajid, as we see them, the ones that are left, were very simple. They didn't spend that much money on them. It's not haram because if the prince's own money, he can do whatever he wants with his money. So we won't put it in the fifth category, it's not haram. But it's disliked in the sense that if there is some other need in the Muslim Ummah, for example, that same Arab prince spends $20 million in the masjid, and then five days later you read in the newspaper that he gave $1 million to the Palestinians, so there's a problem here, right? The Palestinian needs the $20 million, and the masjid needs the $1 million, right? But it's still not haram, but it's because it's something that has some level of dislike. What did dislike mean is that you could have done it better. There might have been a better option, and so we dislike the fact that we did that in the less preferable way. So it's disliked. The fifth thing is a haram innovation. And we'll discuss several of those. Today I'll give you an example of a haram innovation is to play music and to do sajda at the grave of the old mali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's something new. The Sahaba didn't practice this at the resting place of the Prophet The Tabi'in didn't practice this in the resting place of the Sahaba. Alright, now let me open this up a bit more, especially when it comes to the case of Mustahab Bidat. You see, many places in the Quran and Sunnah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions a desired goal, but He doesn't tell us specifically how to get that goal. So the way they explain this in Arabic is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us ijmal, He gives us a general target, but He leaves the tafsil, the detailed methodology to reach that target up to the ulama and mashayikh of every time and every place. For example, ilm. To acquire sacred knowledge is a goal clearly mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah, many hadith on the virtues and merits of getting knowledge of the deen. How exactly you should get that knowledge, what syllabus you should follow, what curriculum you should study, what detailed curriculum there should be in English, in Yoruba, in Arabic, in Urdu, in Gujarati, those details are not in the Quran and Sunnah. That's left up to the ulama of the age to decide. So we will tell you maybe later today or tomorrow about one very special group of ulama that came up with a very special syllabus that alhamdulillah for the last 150 or so years has been so successful that even today we wish that ourselves and our children should study this syllabus. But still, that syllabus is not wajib. It's not required. There could be other ways to get the ilm. And there are other places in the world that have different curricula, different syllabi. But any one of these syllabus is mustahab is recommended. Why? Because it's a means to an end. Okay. The second issue that came up in Bidat was that there were two groups which took two different positions on Bidat. Specifically on the reprehensible or the haram Bidat. The reason why is that because the Prophet said Kullu bid'atin zalala that everything that is new is uh, is an error. It is something is a manifest error that leads a person astray. Now here the Prophet is using the word bid'ah negatively. So when he's using the word negatively, the people who study hadith realize that he's not talking about all five categories of bid'ah. He's talking about the negative kinds of bid'ah. A wajib bid'ah cannot be a dalala. Putting the marks on the Qur'an cannot be a dalala. Studying a syllabus of sacred knowledge cannot be a dalala. Making a masjid in a different architectural style than the time of the Saba is not a dalala. It must be the negative uh, bid'at that are being mentioned. So a lot of debate took place as what exactly, how do we draw the line? How do we draw the border? So there were two positions 
and then two things happened in history which made both groups change their positions. So what were the two positions? The first position was that anything that is not found in the first three generations, which is the Sahaba, the Tabi'in, and the Tabai Tabi'in, the companions of the Prophet the followers and the followers of the followers, anything not new that didn't exist in those three generations, that is a negative bidah. That's how they chose to define negative bidah. Something that is not sabit min sunnah awit awit sahaba awit tabain awit tabai tabain. Something that is not established or proven or on record on the three generations. They said that is a bad innovation. That was the first definition. Second group came up with a different definition. They said that anything is going to be called a bad innovation if it is khilaf is shara or khilaf is Quran was sunnah. If it is against the Quran and sunnah. So one group said that a bad bidah is anything that is not to be found in the first three generations. Second group said that a bad bidah is something, we will declare something bad if it goes against the, something in the Quran and Sunnah. Very subtle difference. I'll give you an example. Example is, let's say a young man comes to me and says that I have a problem. And my problem is, is that I'm not able to think about death and I don't think about the Akhirah. Now I tell that young man, okay, just as an example, just as an example, I tell that young man that what you should do is at night before you sleep, every night, you should recite, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un, and you should think about its meanings when you recite it. He says, okay, he goes. Then he meets somebody and says, oh, you know, Every night I'm reciting Inna lillahi wa inna lillahi raji'un 100 times And I try to reflect on the meaning that verily I am from Allah And my return is to Allah And I'm doing this so I can increase my remembrance of death and the afterlife So that person says, oh my brother, this is a bidah This is wrong And he says, why? Because the Sahaba never recited this 100 times at night before they went to sleep The Tabi never recited this 100 times before they went to sleep at night And none of the Tabi Tabi so according to group one, this activity is bad. According to the definition of the first group, this is a bad activity. This is what the Prophet meant in the Hadith. This is the Zalala, this will lead you astray, this will in fact this will lead you to the hellfire. So they say, don't do this. So then he goes back to the person who told him, and that person will say, no, no, no. According to us, that bidah which is an error or leads you to the hellfire is if you do something against the Quran and Sunnah. We'll come back to this example. Then two things happen in history. Number one, is that some people began to develop new things, new types of worship, new type of zikr, that were outside the Sharia. For example, people thought that, okay, we will do zikr with music, or we will do zikr with dance, or we will worship the person inside the grave or we will pray to the person inside the grave many things like this they started adding so that's the first thing that happened historically in some of the Muslims second thing that happened was that there were some Muslims who gave so much emphasis to these new things that they overemphasized them so for example they would be more regular about saying inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun hundred times at night than they'd be about their isha prayer 
Right? They might even skip the Isha prayer, but they would never sleep without saying this hundred times. So these two things happened. And both scholars, groups of scholars, saw these two historical facts. And they both changed their definition. The first group became even more strict. And said, look, because the first group initially said, okay, you say, first group was a little bit not so strict. Said, okay, you do something, we'll see what it is, even if it's not fine in the time of the Saba. Then this group felt that, look, when you opened the door, look, the people threw the door wide open. We gave them a little bit of space, said you can make some extra zikr, and look at the type of things they're inventing. So what we should do is slam the door shut. Close the door shut. And their thinking was that if anybody wants to do specifically about ibadah, if anybody wants to do any act of worship, then surely the way the types of ibadat or worship mentioned in the hadith should be enough for them. Why should they need some extra type of worship or extra type of zikr? And look, when we allowed them to do so because they thought there was some benefit, look at the things they came up with. So they closed the door absolutely shut, locked, bolted, sealed. Nothing. Don't do anything new. So you go and tell them that Hazrat Bahaudi Naqshaban Ramatulay came up with Mraqabal. They say, oh, <laughs> bidat. This is bidat. Right? Because they're saying door is shut. They don't want the door open and they were sincere. They didn't want the door open because they saw when we opened the door, look what the people did. So they slammed the door shut. Right? The second group said, okay, what we'll do is we will revise. We will add, we will refine, rather, our definition. So they said that bidad is something that is against the Quran and Sunnah, number one. And number two, if you want to do something new, so if you want to do something new, number one, you have to make sure there's nothing in it that's against the Quran and Sunnah. Number two, they added that you have to do so, that new thing must be done for the sake of some goal. It's already mentioned to you earlier. For the sake of some goal mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah. So if a person says, I'm reciting, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi for the sake of remembering death in the afterlife, well that is a goal mentioned in the Quran and Sunnah. And the third thing they said is that when you do something new, you cannot elevate it. So these new things are what we call nafil, they're optional. For example, to recite inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun hundred times at night is not fard, it's not wajib, and most importantly, it's not sunnah. And we cannot view it as sunnah. We cannot say it's sunnah to do muraqabah. You cannot say that. You cannot say it's sunnah to recite inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajun hundred times at night. So they made it clear because they saw some people were overemphasizing this even more than the faraiz. So they leave Isha prayer, which is farz, and they do this, which is totally nafil, totally optional. So they made that part of their definition. So for example, what is the sign of this, right? So the Fuqaha write in this very famous book, Fatawa Shamiya, it's written that the sign that a person has elevated something in the deen to the level of making it bidat is that ayyulaima tarikuhu. That they reprimand, they chastise the person who leaves that activity. So for example, if you find somebody who doesn't do that zikr, you look down upon them, you scold them, you get upset at them. That you can only do for the faraiz and the wajibat. You cannot look down upon somebody because he doesn't do zikr. Alright? So just like that also, in tabliki jamaat, if we look down upon somebody who doesn't go on tabliq, that, in that case, for that person, tabliq has become a bidah. 
Because tabliq is not farz or wajib on an individual person. Right? If we look down upon somebody who doesn't come to the majlis of zikr, then that has become a bidat because coming to majlis of zikr is not farz and wajib. However, at the same time, we have to realize that even though we've kept it at the level of nafil, we've given everything its proper rank, still for those of us who are involved in a particular activity, it's we voluntarily choose to do what we call ihtimam of that activity. We voluntarily choose to be very regular in that activity. So a person for themselves, he doesn't view muraqabah as far as in the sharia sense, but he can view it mandatory for him individually to do muraqabah. Not, for the, not because the sharia made it mandatory, but he can make it a regular practice himself. So you hear stories, the mashayikh will say that make sure you do your muraqabah every day. If you find that you're lazy, tell your nafs that I won't eat dinner until I do muraqabah. But as long as our aqidah is still that muraqabah is not far as a wajib, but I'm doing it regularly for my own benefit, and I have to do it regularly, otherwise I won't benefit if I do it irregularly. And there's proof for this in our deen, in the sharia. The Prophet said in the hadith, Ahabbul a'mali indallahi, Ahabbul a'mali indallahi adwamuha wa inkallah. A humble a'mali, the most beloved of actions, in the lahi, in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, adwa. Adwa muha, the one that you do most regularly, most consistently. Wa in kalla, even if they're just a few. So let's work our way backwards. This phrase, wa in kalla, even if it's a few, means that these are not the fara'is. Nobody can say that I offer the best prayer. Why? Because I only offer fajr, but I offer fajr every day of my life. No. Nobody can say I offered the best Ramadan. I, every year I fast three days in Ramadan. Gallah, a little bit. But I do it regularly. Every year I fast three days. That's not the meaning. What in kalla means that the amount is optional. So the amount is optional not in the farais and the wajibat. The amount is optional in the nawafil. So the words wa in kalla of the hadith are teaching us that this hadith is about nafil. About optional acts. But the deed is saying the most beloved of optional acts are those that you do regularly. So all of us want our muraqabah to be beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Therefore we make sure we do it regularly. Not because we think it's far as a wajib, But because we want that muraqabah to be most beneficial and most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we can do ihtimam ourselves. Just like that a brother who's in tabliq. He can do ihtimam that regularly every month he goes for three days. As long as he knows in terms of his aqidah that it's not far wajib, but for himself he can adopt it as a very regular practice and become very firmly established on it, that is fine. That's not a bit. Right? Everybody understand the difference? So this is how the second group refined their definition. And even now, you have these two groups today. Right? Now, if you think about it, the second definition makes more sense. Right? Because actually what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to do in the Quran is that we shouldn't do anything against the Sharia. That is what is haram. That is what is sin. The definition of sin, dhamm or ism in the ardeen is when a person does something against the commandments of the Quran or against the sunnah, the teachings of the Prophet. So this type of bidah being mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet that is an error, it takes you to hellfire, is a sin. So we're going to look at the definition of sin and where we find the definition of sin we'll say that's the bidah that is being mentioned in that hadith. And the definition of sin is again when you do something against the Quran and the Sunnah. 
And the second thing, however, that they added, refined, that we have to be wary of not adding something to the deen at a level, at a level higher than what it is placed. Right? So we should not think something is wajib when it is actually mustahab. We should not think that something is sunnah, established sunnah, transmitted sunnah, when it is mubah. Right? As long as we are careful about this, then, inshallah ta'ala, we are saved from falling into the negative types of bidat. So now we look, then there are many, many things. And if you look in the ummah, there are many, many things that we've done. For example, there was, for a long time, there was a difference of opinion between Hadith scholars as to what constituted a sahih or a sound chain of transmission for a Hadith. Even between Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, the two famous uh, compilers of Sahih a Hadith, even they have a difference of opinion. Right? By and large, the ulama have agreed on a few definitions. Still, there's some slight difference. Very people who go very deep might still have a still slight difference. But still, people today, by and large, adopt these two positions. So much so that sometimes you pick up another Hadith book, it'll write that this Hadith is Sahih ala shart al-Bukhari. It is Sahih according to Imam Bukhari's definition. Or sometimes it will say it's Sahih according to the definition of Imam Muslim. So we use those definitions. And we, the Hadith scholar, if there's a Hadith scholar who chooses that I want to 100% adopt the criteria of Imam Bukhari for what is a Sahih Hadith, then he can do that. And that's permissible in the Sharia. Just like that, if somebody says, I want to 100% accept what Imam Malik said as far as, and what he says is wajib. That's permissible in the Sharia. He can do that. And just like that, if somebody says, I want to 100% accept what Sultan Bahauddin Naqshaban said is to be my zikr, that is fine. That's acceptable for him in the Sharia. Because neither that Hadith criteria, nor that principle of Islamic jurisprudence, nor that way of zikr has anything in it that's against the Quran and Sunnah. Right? Now there are some special bidat that took place in the world of Tasawwuf. So we should know what is wrong in Tasawwuf as well. Or rather, not in Tasawwuf, but what wrong things have been done falsely in the name of Tasawwuf. In other words, just like teaching you true Tasawwuf, we also should teach you counterfeit Tasawwuf. How to tell a fake Kwacha, from a real Kwacha, Naira, how to tell a real Naira from a fake Naira, right? So, one thing that comes up, very famous question, is this question of Wasila. Wasila, or sometimes called Tawassul. And on the surface it seems that the way we practice Tawassul and Wasila is the same way that the counterfeit people practice Tawassul and Wasila. But there is actually, if you look into it a bit more deeper, there's a very, very big difference. Wasila means to invoke something or someone when you make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay? So, one way to do this, which is the incorrect way, is that a person goes to the grave. Let's say a person goes to the grave of Hazrat Shaykh Usman Danfodiya, rahmatullahi alayhi. And goes to the grave and starts making dua to Shaykh Usman, that, O oh, Shaykh Usman, you are the beloved of Allah. Surely you are in the state of his pleasure. I ask you to grant me X, Y, Z. That's not acceptable in the Sharia. Second possibility. He 
request Shaykh Usman to make dua for him to Allah. So for example, says, Oh Shaykh Usman, you are the beloved of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you are in a state in which he is pleased with you. I ask you to ask Allah to grant me X, Y, Z. That's also not permissible. So what do our mashayikh do then when we go to the grave? Or what do our mashayikh teach us to do when we go to the grave? When we go to the grave of somebody, first of all, it's a sunnah amal that we should recite certain du'as at the grave. You can recite some Qur'an for what we call isal al to send that reward in the account of that dearly departed soul. And then we also make du'a. But when we make du'a, we don't make du'a to the person in the grave, nor do we address the person in the grave and ask him to make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we do make du'a using wasila. What does wasila mean is that we invoke something about that person in our du'a. Specifically as follows. So let's maybe shift to another example. Imagine you are at the grave of Imam Bukhari. Himallah ta'ala in Bukhari. So number one way du'a you can make is you can say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In this grave lies your beloved servant. And I love him for your sake. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if truly, if he is your beloved, then accept the love I have for him for your sake and grant me X, Y, Z. And then you make dua. That is the sila. Second way you can make dua is pertaining to the ahwal of that person when he was alive. So for example, O oh Allah, I'm standing at the grave of Imam Bukhari, ta'ala. And again, he is your beloved and I love him for your sake. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, due to the love I have for him, which is for the reason that he was beloved to you. What was that reason? That he had the great knowledge of hadith and he was a lover of the sunnah. So put the same love of sunnah and the same knowledge of hadith in my heart that you put in his heart. So you invoke or you refer to something about but we say you refer to the kamalat of the sahib al-kabr. You refer to the noble qualities of the person in the grave. And you ask Allah to give, we ask Allah to give us a share of those noble qualities. Why? Because we love that person. And that person became the beloved of Allah through those noble qualities. So then you can make so many du'as. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put the same taqwa that you granted him in my heart. Then the other side will ask you this question. That okay... Fine, you want so then so you see there are two sides and we're in the middle. <laughs> so one group calls us Bidati, the other group calls us Wahhabi. Okay? <laughs> right? This group, which is making doa to the person, thinks that we are too strict. But then there's that other our first friends who had the first definition of bidah. Right? They say even this is a bidah. And then they'll ask you the question that okay, if you want to make this dua, that Allah Ta'ala put the same love for the sunnah and the same knowledge for deed that you put in Imam Bukhari's heart and my heart, why can't you do that at home? Why do you have to go to his grave to make that dua? That's how they'll ask you. So, first answer is that yes, we agree with you. We can make that dua at home. And we will, inshallah, and we do make that dua at home. You can see if you go to, mashallah, Darlum Zakaria, where our young three friends study, when they finish their annual session of Bukhari, they can make that same dua sitting so far from Bukhara in Johannesburg. 
So number one, we also agree 100% you can make that dua at home. It's not necessary to go to that grave. Number two, still we happen to have shown up at that grave. So we made that dua because when you're at a particular place, sometimes a person's emotions become activated. Just like in Darul Zakaria, when they finish the book of Bukhari, they're in a certain emotional state. Then you can ask them, why do you make the du'as you make at Khatam al-Bukhar? You could have made that in the third day. You could have made that in the middle of the year. You could make that every day. But there's a certain emotional state a person enters. And when we enter that emotional state of sincerity and inabat and, 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 uh, and we're focusing towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then we have to captivate on that moment. And this brings us to a second major, major point which is the second issue, which is the hayat of the anbiya and the awliya in their graves. This is a very, very deep philosophical concept that has to be understood, however. And that is that according to our mashayikh of the Sunni majority tradition, the people who accept fiqh and the people who accept the sawaf, is that all of the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are alive in their graves. And also all of the awliya, at least who are of the rank of the Siddiqeen, are also alive in their graves. Allahu Akbar. Now what does this mean and why did we come at this position and this conclusion? And when we understand that, that's why we will understand that when you go to a grave in which the person inside is alive, then that is going to have a certain different feeling, you'll have a different feeling. And that will have an emotional, it will trigger an emotional response. But the trick is to manage to manifest that emotional response within the bounds of the Sharia. Now the reason our ulama took this position, there are many reasons. The first reason is simply that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned the Quran of Kareem four categories of people upon whom he has sent his in These are called the four Munam Ale categories, the Nabiyin, the Prophets. Number two, the Siddiqeen the people who were the most truthful in submitting to the prophecy of their prophet. That's what a siddiq is. The people who were the most truest in submitting to the prophecy, which means the prophetic teachings of their prophet. And the greatest of the siddiqeen, the siddiqi akbar. That's what it means when we call Sayyidina siddiqi akbar. It's not a play on Abu Bakr akbar. Siddiqi akbar means he is the greatest of all of the siddiqeen in all of humanity. Siddiqi Akmar, Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, don't know why, because he was the number one Siddiq of the number one Nabi. <laughs> right? Allah Akbar. And also, mashallah, the Imam of our Sulsala, Siddiqiyya, Naqshabandiyya, Mujaddidiyya, Habibiyya, Fikiriyya. So, four categories, Nabiin, Siddiqin, number three, Shuhada, the martyrs. And literally, in its primary meaning it means those who sacrifice their lives for the sake of the deen, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa for the sake of Rasulullah the Sahaba gave their lives to protect him in the fields of Badr and Uhud and in fact the whole battle because the people the kuffar who marched out in Badr one of their niyat was to slaughter the Prophet that was their niyat that we will kill him and eradicate Islam from the face of this earth so anybody who had the incredible blessing to stand on the battle of Badr has so many rewards. Sacrifice their life for Allah, for the deen of Allah, for the book of Allah, for the messenger of Allah, for the ummah of the messenger of Allah. Infinite, we can just that go on forever. Alhamdulillah, we went to Badr. Alhamdulillah, on this trip, on the way back from Medina Manawar, it was the 17th of Ramadan, the same day the battle of Badr took place. 
and we made dua. And it's a strange, they don't let you go anywhere near that field. <laughs> At least when we were there, they didn't let us go anywhere. But still, we passed through the area which they said was Badr. Khair, so the third category was Shuhada, and the fourth are the Salihin. The righteous, upright, pious followers of the deen of their Nabi. So these are four groups of people. Number three group, Shuhada, and this is an order. And as Nabiin are greater in rank than Siddiqeen, Siddiqeen are greater than Shuhada, and Shuhada are greater than the Salihin. And sometimes these groups are combined also. Right? A Siddiq can also become a Shaheed, etc. The third group, Shuhada, Allah SWT says Himself says about them in the Quran that do not say that they are dead, Balhum Ahya, that rather they are alive. <laughs> they are alive. This everybody agrees that the Shuhada are alive in their graves. Right? So because of that, the ulama of Ahl Sunnah al Jama'ah, and this unfortunately is also a term that has been misappropriated and used by many people. So we'll say the ulama and the mashaykh, the true classical followers of tafsir, hadith, the mufassirin, muhaddisin, fuqahan, mashaykh. They're heirs of that legacy of the mufassirin, muhaddisin, fuqahan, mashaykh. They're called the Ahlul Sunnah al Jama'ah. They took the position that because the shuhada are alive, and the Siddiqeen and the Nabiin are greater than them in rank, then surely they are alive. Then a second way to understand this, that when a person dies normally, a normal person who is not in this category, that they remain alive in their grave. When they die, their ruh goes to a place called Iliyin, and that is considered to be a better place. So if that is the principle that when you die, the ruh has to go to a better place, so now let's take when he passes away physically from this world, if you are going to take his rue, if you are going to take the position that his rue is taken out of his body, then you have to put it in a better place. <coughs> there is nothing in the whole universe that is afzal to the body of the Prophet. So much so that our ulama write that the body of the Prophet is superior to the Kaaba. So much so that they write that the body of the Prophet is superior to the Arsh of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because he is the greatest of creation. So our ulama say that the ruh did not come out of the Prophet Rather the ruh was in the whole body. When the Prophet passed away from the earth, this ruh was collected and put into his gulp. Into his heart. That's what happened to the Prophet. And the ruh is there in his gulp, which is alive in Medina Manawara, in the Rosa, in his noble and sacred resting place. Now, this is just phenomenal to imagine and it actually it makes a person very scared and awe when they present it in front. I always feel many people say that Makkah Mukarama, most of our Mashaikh say that Makkah Mukarama has a lot of Jalal and Medina Manora has a lot of Jamal. And surely this is true about the cities. But I personally always feel much more terrified in Medina Manora. And the reason for that, for me personally, is because Allah SWT is everywhere. So when I walk into Makkah Makaram and see the Haram, certainly seeing the Kaaba is something new. But I'm no more in the presence of Allah than I was in Lusaka or in Lahore. Because Allah Ta'ala's presence is equally everywhere. However, when you walk into Medina Manawara, you walk into Masjid you have the audacity to stand in front of the Rosa. You put yourself in the presence of the Prophet which never happened before. You were not in his presence in Lusaka or in Lahore or in Johannesburg or in New York. So it's very terrifying to all of a sudden put yourself in front of the presence of the Prophet ﷺ. And Hazrat when he takes us there, he teaches us that a person should make lots of istighfar 
before they dare to set foot in front of that place. And they should recite lots of salawat. And they should give sadaqah. And they should do anything and everything that they can do to try to win over their Lord. And that's why also our shaykh, this is the wisdom of our mashaykh, they prefer to go to Makkah Mukarramah first. There are some people, we have some brothers in India, Pakistan. We, they're called, well, let's say we call them the intoxicated lovers. They are our loving brethren. And so they have, it, they think that it's part of your love for the Prophet to go to Medina Manawara first. And the way they explain this is that first you should present yourself at the court of the Prophet. However, our Mashaikh have this wisdom, they say, no, go to Makkah Mukarramah first. Because cleanse yourself. Present yourself in the ultimate court of Allah Taala. Cling at the Multazim. Present yourself at the Babi Kaaba. And repent of your sins. Put your dirty heart in that washing machine. Once it goes on for several rounds and several Umrahs, several Tawafs, then you can have the audacity to go to Medina Manawara. I remember because Shaykh taught that many times I would make this Dawan Makkah Mukarramah. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if for no other reason, just forgive me because I have a plan to go to Medina Manawra. If you don't forgive me and I go to Medina Manawra in this state, then your beloved messenger son will become saddened. And because I know that you don't want your messenger to become saddened, then purify me here right now in Makkah Mukarram. So this is the wisdom of our Mashaikh. Everything they understood the adab. They understood the adab of Allah, adab of the Prophet They understood the tertib of going to Makkah, uh, the, the sequence that one should go to Makkah, Makarramah first and then Medina Manawara. Here, so getting back to our topic is that the Prophet and all of the Anbiya and the Siddiqeen are alive in their grave. Now that doesn't mean they're not alive like you and me or they're not eating or they're not even praying either, right? But they're in some sense and that we'll just leave it that Allah Ta'ala knows best but there's some state in which his kept them in a living state, right? There are many, many, you know, uh, issues, but one doesn't need to go too deep into it either. But this is a major thing we have to know, because there are some people, those same other people who have that first definition of bidah, their view is that the prophets and the siddiqin are not alive in their grave. However, they also think the shuhada are alive. Now imagine that somebody gives his life for the sake of the Prophet ﷺ, and he's a martyr, and he's alive in the grave, but the Prophet for whom sake he gave his life is not alive in the grave. So how could that be possible? Right? That the shaheed in the name of the Prophet ﷺ is alive in the grave, but the Rasulullah himself is not alive in the grave. So this may not be something that you come across in Africa, but it's some important to know. In other words, there are some beliefs that we have that even some of the counterfeit Sufis have. So we want you to know what is correct and what isn't. So just because you see a counterfeit Sufi and he says something, you think, okay, no, we don't believe that. So if some counterfeit Sufi comes and tells you that they believe that the Siddiqeen are alive in their grave, we also believe that. But when we go to their grave, we don't make dua to them nor do we ask them to make du'a to Allah for us, nor do we do sajda. The counterfeit Sufis also do that. They do sajda in, to the grave. They prostrate to the grave. So we don't do these things. These are all bidat. These are, rep, these are the sinful bidat. The sinful innovations. The sinful innovations. 
So it's very important for us when we're in tasawwuf to know what is sound and correct tasawwuf and what is inauthentic and inaccurate tasawwuf. Any questions up to this point? It's okay. Okay, number one, the reason, I mean, you corrected yourself, and let me just do the first thing you asked initially anyway. The reason we don't make dua to them in the grave, even if they're alive in the grave, is because we don't make dua to them when they were alive on the surface of the earth either. So when we didn't make dua to them when they were alive on top of the earth, why would we make dua to them when they have now passed away from the earth? The second is that if they're alive, why can we not ask them to make dua for us in the court of Allah subhanahu Actually, there's a whole other separate issue, which is this issue of to, even though they are alive in their grave, there remains a question as to what extent they hear us. This is what we call Mas'ala Sima Imota. That to what extent can they hear what you say? And to what extent are they in any way still linked to what goes on on top of the earth? Right. So them being alive in the grave does not necessarily mean that we can communicate with them or we can put our request before them, that they would listen to our request and then make dua for us. Another issue is that dua really is something that is done by people who are living. So just like we said that they're not praying salah in their grave, they're not sitting there making dua even for themselves, let alone that they would make dua for somebody else in their grave. The nature of their life is Allah knows best, but they're not engaged in ibadah nor are they engaged in mundane worldly things. So these are the two reasons. Number one, because they're not doing this. They're not making dua. That we could say, okay, while you're making dua for yourself or your family, make dua for us. And the second reason is that it's unclear, just to keep it simple for now, unclear whether and to what extent they can hear us. Other than the problem, just we're setting aside Rasulullah for the moment. We're just talking about the Siddiqin right now. This much all we can understand is that if Allah subhanahu wa wants in the position of our ulama and mashayikh on this issue is that there's a possibility that they can hear. So there's an imkan of this but that's up to Allah subhanahu wa what He lets them hear what He chooses for them to hear or not. So it doesn't mean they're lying in their grave and they can hear the traffic and they can hear the noise and they can hear the grave diggers joking with one another when they walk by. It's not like that. It's not complete contact with this world. Certainly, there is the potential and possibility of contact, but Allah subhanahu wa controls that shudder. Right? Allah subhanahu wa would mean you don't control. We can't go there and say that, okay, they didn't hear the grave digger, but they're going to hear us. Allah subhanahu wa controls that shudder. Shudder, you understand? The, the screen on the window, what they can hear and what they can't hear. So, at most, then, what some of our ulama say that you can recite Quran, and perhaps perhaps they might hear that recitation of Qur'an and listening to the kalam of Allah would give them some type of surur or some type of happiness. But directly going and communicating them in a state of conversation is not the practice or teaching of our ulama. So this would be a type of conversation to address them, to do khitab to them 
to address them and say, make dua for me. The situation with the Prophet is different. If you look in the books that mention du'as to be recited, the books of our ulama about the du'as to be recited, in at that special moment and in that sacred place when one is presenting oneself before the Imam al-Anbiya at his resting place, at that point there are some phrases that you say which do address the Prophet For example, you ask that you can and should ask the Prophet to remember you on the Day of Judgment when he is giving the water from the Hosek altar. You can and should ask the Prophet to grant you his shifa. People address the Prophet and say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu annaka that I bear witness that there is no being worthy of worship except for Allah and I bear witness that you, Ya Rasulullah are the servant and messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then they address the Prophet and, and I ask you to testify that I took to be a witness to my kalima that I just recited in front of you in Medina Munawar on the Day of Judgment. So there is that notion there. right? However, even in those books, you don't find anything in which a believer is taught to say to the Prophet, I ask you to make dua to Allah for me. What you do at that moment is you yourself make dua to Allah at the Rosa, you yourself can make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is, this is the way you talk. Remember me in your shifa, remember me on the Hosei Kothar. You see, again, that's why I said there were two things. One is the question of them listening to us, hearing us. That is clear as far as the Prophet goes. But even then, Allah Ta'ala can control that shudder. There might be somebody, Allah save us from such an unfortunate position, but there might be somebody who goes in Allah Ta'ala might put a veil. But otherwise, normally, the practice is that the Prophet does hear us. The second is what I told you separately, is that when they're alive in the grave, they can listen to us. But are they making du'a? or doing any type of ibadat that we could put in a request that when you're doing your ibadat, include us, remember us. That second part isn't clear. And therefore, our ulama, we don't do that. We don't say, Ya Rasulullah, next time you pray, remember us. Or next time you make dua, make dua for us as well. So, that's not been mentioned in our books. Right? Those are, I mean, that will get into too much detail. Yeah. Yeah. That is this whole other concept of that. Uh, they, they get their salah, the tawfiq to do the nabawi salah for them took place in their grave. Nabawi salah, in other words, the salah of our deen, was not something they were able to pray in their lifetime on earth. So for this izaz, right, some are the hold that position that they are praying that salah. Not du'at, right? Or that, or that you could go, I mean, according to some people, the grave of Sayyidina Ibrahim is in Hebron, Khalil, in Philistine. Right? Let's say that is accurate. And if you were to go there, you could not also do, the same rules would apply. You could send your salam, you could send your salawat, but you wouldn't do this thing about the prayer, about du'at, about supplication. This is an extremely, extremely high level theoretical topic. 
in which when you go deeper into it then there have been multiple positions even within the authentic ulama just like you have Maliki, Hanafi, Shafi when you go deep into Islamic law you will find multiple positions in the ulama of Islamic law so even in these issues there are some multiple positions amongst the ulama of theology or the ulama of Aqai but broadly speaking to get the broad concepts clear is that number one right, the Anbiya and the Siddiqin are alive in their graves and number two uh, you can address them, uh, you can address the Prophet in Medina Manara in the different ways that we mentioned. Number three, at that grave you can make dua to Allah SWT using what we call wasila, which simply means to invoke the love that we have for that person. Number two, the belovedness of that person. Number three, the sifa due to which that person was beloved. And you can make then dua to Allah SWT invoking any or all of these things. This is known as dua and then a person can just genuinely make dua also. For example, when you stand, you know, or a good way even to see this is if you read the things that are mentioned that a person should say when they move a few steps to the right when addressing Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, and then another one or two steps to the right, and the things mentioned in the books that you should recite when addressing Sayyidina Umar Farooq, right? So... Uh, and then, but even after saying that, a person can still make dua directly to Allah Subhanahu wa For example, Ya Allah, just the same dedication that you gave Abu Bakr Siddiq to Rasulullah give me the same dedication to my Shaykh. The same closeness that you gave Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq give me the same closeness to my Shaykh. The same Siddiq and truth that you gave Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq give. And so, there are many, many duas a person makes. Them. And again, a person can make those duas at home also. We could make those du'as right now also. But when a person is physically there, they enter an emotional state, which I told you, you become overwhelmed because you're put in their presence. That's why I linked this. And how can we say you're in their presence? Because they're alive in their grave. So obviously when you go into the presence of the Kaaba, you are motivated, you make certain du'as. When you come here into the presence of the, in the masjid and intikaf, you're more motivated than at home. So when you put yourself in the presence of somebody, then a certain state happens. And you're more inclined to make those du'as, but we don't think it's necessary uh, to be there to make these du'as. These du'as can be made at any place. And it's not necessary to only make du'as. You can go to the grave of Imam Bukhari and make du'as in general. Not invoking him, not using wasila, not any du'a about anything pertaining to sunnah hadith. All of that is permissible. So there's a wide spectrum of permissible activity that a person can do. Any questions? From Ismail, still, still booting up? Hmm? Still booting? Where is Ishaq? Ishaq. Uh, Ismail is still booting? Yes, he's still booting up. Actually, you see, when you have a new and better operating system, it takes longer to boot up. So, mashallah, Ismail has come this year with a new and improved operating system from last year. Right, Ishaq? It's like this? Third thing is the question of adab towards the shaykh. One is to go through the adab of the shaykh, and I think in Shalamana, Janaid, Dal Prakatam has already done that with you. The second is sometimes this, again, our friends of the first definition will say that what is this adab you have towards the shaykh? This is bidat. When he stands, you stand. When he sits, you sit. You don't want to put your feet towards him. 
you don't want to walk in his shadow. Let me take the most extreme one. Aapne praayat? Okay. So let's take this one which people... This one is the... Oh, when they read this, they, they have a heart attack. This is very difficult for them to digest. The digestive power was small to begin with, but this is one that is very difficult for them to digest. Which is that it's written in the book that when you walk with the sheikh, you don't, number one, you don't want to walk in his shadow. And number two, you don't want your shadow to fall on him. Allahu Akbar. <coughs> so I'll explain one general thing to you. And that is as follows, is that, remember when we, you find this word often, always remember this word when it comes to the Sharia. Very important word when it comes to Sharia, and that word is called hudud, which is the rule of had. Had means boundary. Now the Sharia puts the boundary, all you have to do is not cross the boundary. Within this border, you can go to whatever extremes you want, but you cannot cross the border. So the border in adab is that we cannot do worship of the sheikh. We cannot worship the sheikh. And you will see none of us worship the sheikh. That is the boundary. This side of the boundary, one is respect. There's no limit to how much you can respect the sheikh. This is why they say in Urdu that there is no, or, and there is no intiha. Adab ki koi intiha nahi. There is no limit to adab. That means there is no limit to respect. There is no limit to honoring. There is no limit to loving. This, this is the limit. This is the had of the Sharia that you cannot worship. Right? And you cannot, or, or uh, you cannot give, make personify Tazim. You cannot personify, you cannot make the persona of the Sheikh as a divine. You cannot do that. Other than that, everything else is permissible. Now, still, a person asks this question that, you know, but what is this that you don't want to follow? So, once, when we were with Sheikh in Umrah in May last year, and we were sitting in the airport in Jeddah, Allah Wallam, how this topic came up. But Shaykh mentioned his own story which I will share with you and then you will understand. So, Hazrat Sahib, we were sitting in the airport waiting for the flight to go back from Jannah to Lahore. And it was me and Shaykh Khalid of the Sattar and Hazrat. Just the three of us. I think it was just the three of us. Allah Allah, maybe there was one or two other people. And then Hazrat Sahib said that sometimes when a person reads the adab of the shaykh, a person starts getting questions that this looks like it's too extreme. So immediately we started looking down and we started making istighfar and thinking, what did we do? And maybe shaykh is thinking that we have some doubts, right? So shaykh said, and he, shaykh could see that this was our kafir. So shaykh said, no, listen to me. And then so then we looked back up. And shaykh said, I myself, when I read these adab, a question came into my mind that why is there so much adab for the shaykh? So then we relaxed, okay. <laughs> and this is the way the shaykh teaches us. They make us relaxed so we will listen to them attentively and we will understand everything they're saying so that we will get the lesson that they want us to get from their words. It's very important because they don't waste their words and nor... We should make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa that we don't become a means of their words becoming wasted. And it's for this niyat that we pass these words on to you whenever we meet you because we think, inshallah, 
We have hope in you that you are the people who will inshallah not waste those words that we have spent 13 years of our life wasting. Right. So Sheikh said that I had this question in my mind and I thought about this for a lot of time. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put my attention towards a verse in the Quran al-Kareem and that made me understand. And the verse was as follows. Is that First, about Sayyidina Musa salam, when he asked Allah SWT that he wishes to see him. And Allah SWT sends, and the word is used, tajalla, sends his tajalli, sends his tajalli on a bush or a shrub or some type of plant that was there. And then this valley became so sacred or so honored in Allah SWT's eyes. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Musa that whenever you enter this valley, you should enter barefoot. You should take your shoes off out of adab for this place where one tajalli of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has fallen. So Hazrat Sahib said that when I thought of this, that if the tajalli of Allah comes down once on a bush, and due to that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet of his time to have so much adab that he removes his shoes, so what should be the state of the heart of the awliya of Allah whose tajalliyat are coming daiman perpetually 24 hours their hearts are getting the tajalli of Allah how much adab should we have towards that heart so actually the adab towards the shaykh is the adab towards the heart that the shaykh has and the tajalliyat that that heart is receiving from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so if the prophet is Musa alayhi is commanded to do adab of this valley which got one tajalli on one plant then imagine what an ordinary believer, how much other we should have for the shaykh whose heart gets the tajilliyat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah follow him in, I mean, in a massive and perpetual and regular way. First thing. Then second thing. Second thing, mashallah. Second thing is that, Hazrat Sahib said, that I realized, Allah Ta'ala then explained to me one more thing, that I realized how much the Shaykh has given us. And when you really realize that, then, I can't remember the verse, there's a verse about that the people will be with their zuriyat in the Akhirah. That people will be joined with their, literally it means their children, in the Akhirah. So then Hazrat Sahib said that when Allah Ta'ala put my attention on this verse, then I realized that the zuriyat or the offspring being mentioned, one can be physical, our blood offspring, and the second can be our spiritual offspring. So if we make that niyat that we are like the spiritual children of our Mashaikh, then we look at this verse that means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inshallah ta'ala join us with our spiritual elders in the Akhirah. Then third, as the Sahib said, that I reflected on a hadith of the Prophet which is al-mar'u ma'aman ahabba, that a person would, will be with that person whom he loves. So coupling that second, the verse, and this hadith, 
Then Hazrat Saab said that I realized that the Shaykh can bring me to a place where I would have never been able to have gone. And he explained it this way that imagine that if in Jannah we want to be with the Prophet in Jannah. Now imagine what type of amal we would have to bring. And then he asked us that can any Muslim say that he has brought that type of amal, that he will do those amal in this world, those type of actions and deeds and worship, then the Day of Judgment he will be granted the same daraja, the same place in Jannah. So obviously we said no, that there's no way anybody could do that. So then Shaykh said that that means that getting the same place with the Prophet could not be in our own ability. There's nothing in the world we could do, even if we became however pious and taqwa that we could, none of us could say we could actually earn that spot. But there's one way we can get that spot. And that is according to that verse in this hadith. That if we are with the person, that we, our shaykh, that we love, and he is with his shaykh because he loves him, and he is with his shaykh who he loves him, so through this golden chain, this silsilatul dahab, this golden and sacred and honored chain of our mashayikh back to the Prophet through that nisbat we get to become with the Prophet in Jannah. So then imagine that person due to the relationship due to the relationship with that person you get inshallah ta'ala the nisbat with the Prophet in Jannah. How can you but do adab of that person? How could you not do adab of such a person who can bring you what a whole lifetime of worship in Ibadah could not bring you. So then after all of this, then we understood, right? The meaning that there is no limit to Adam. However much, there's no limit to Muhammad of the Shaykh, there's no limit to love for the Shaykh or for Adam of the Shaykh. But you see, this can only be understood with this Muhammad, you see? And so our friends, with the first definition, they don't have this muhabbat for even their own teachers. They don't have that same teacher-student relationship. So it's not their fault. They haven't witnessed this muhabbat. So we should make dua for them and we should also understand that they are sincerely saying according to their own understanding and their own experience, which is limited in this sense that they don't have it felt or experienced that muhabbat. And we can understand the adab of the shaykh because we are living and trying to feel more and more of that Muhammad. So today then we basically generally discuss the notion of bidah and good bidah and bad bidah and the different definitions of what makes a bad bidah, the different things that happen in history that caused us to change and revise our definitions. Then we discuss three or four specific things. One was wasila, what it means to make du'a invoking someone at their grave or even otherwise you can make du'a invoking the mashayikh or if you see in the shajra you make du'a invoking the mashayikh of the shajra even in katsina next thing we discuss the issue of uh, the, the haya the living life of the anbiya of rasulullah all of the anbiya and the siddiqin and how that also creates an emotional response of being presented in front of someone, right? So you can imagine then that student who has actually studied the Sahih of Bukhari, he'd have a particular feeling because Imam Bukhari is his great-great-grand teacher, his grand ustad, right? So there would be a certain emotional feeling in his heart when he comes physically in front of Imam Bukhari. Then there was a discussion that it's not 100% clear in different ulama of different positions as to what extent they are aware 
of what we may or may not say to them. But the key thing is that Allah Ta'ala controls this. Allah Ta'ala has the control over that. And the last thing we discussed then was Adab of the Shaykh. And why is it that in these books it is written to do so much Adab of the Shaykh? That there's a reason for that. And that is the Mahabba that we have for the Shaykh and the Ahsanat of the Shaykh. The, the grace and favor that due to the relationship with the Shaykh he brings us to such a noble end and due to the, the first thing due to the the jilliyat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming onto the Shaykh so actually you see there's this phrase in the Quran which is called the Sha'airullah the signs of Allah on earth and the awliya of Allah are min Sha'airullah they're amongst his signs so actually when we do the adab of the wali of Allah it's part of the adab towards Allah it's part of the adab towards Allah. Just like when we do adab of the book of Allah, it's part of the adab towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable all of us and to steer clear of the different innov negative innovations that have come forth in the name of the sawaf. And may He keep us on the straightest and most sincerest of paths as outlined and highlighted and carved by our Mashaikh and Naqshaban. Wa akhirun da'wana. And alhamdulillah.